0: So probably all of us could finish the phrase or finish the sentence, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's a familiar proverbial statement, which basically means despite the appearance of all kinds of outward changes, deeper things really don't change much, if at all. In some ways, it's similar to what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1 and 9, that there is nothing new under the sun. And while we see this in a variety of ways in our world, that the more things change, the more they stay the same, or there's nothing new. There is one way in particular I want us to think about tonight, and that is regarding humanity's rebellion against God. Humanity has been in rebellion against God in one form or another since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Right? That was the, the very first act of rebellion, and from that moment on, humanity has been in consistent and constant rebellion. Against God, now the, the rebellion is seen in a lot of ways, and has been seen in a variety of ways, from the explicit hatred of God from groups uh, I'm sorry, from the likes of people like Frederick uh, Nietzsche, who said, "God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him," to the subtle hatred of God seen in groups like Jehovah's Witness and Mormons and Christian scientists and Islam and groups like that, who seek to recreate God to fit an image they like. Uh, we see it in dramatic hostility and violence God's people face in places like the Sudan. If you follow groups like Operation World or the Voice of the Martyrs, you, you know that Christians in, in many places, they, they suffer badly, painfully, and die horribly, all because they are believers in Jesus Christ. And In places like that, if they convert from Islam to Christianity, they often suffer miserably. Uh, for that, to the more less dramatic American rebellion of just ignoring God and living their own way. And, and these few examples of humanity's rebellion against God are, are always kind of going on. And, and despite how much has changed since the garden, humanity's rebellion against God remains the same. And regardless of how different ex- the examples of rebellion are, the goal remains the same. Ultimately, all of it is. I don't want to be ruled by God. I mean, that was what it very first was in the garden. Uh, the, 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 the tempter told Adam and Eve, you will be like God, right? And so they would be their own God. Essentially, they could no one would rule over them. And so every kind of rebellion against God we see in that has ever existed or ever will exist, it has that one same thrust. I will rule myself. No one will rule over me, not even God. What I want us to to look at tonight in Psalm 2 is I want us to see how God views this rebellion. I want us to understand how this rebellion affects God's plans for the world. And I want us to understand how we should respond when we see man's rebellion against God in the world. So open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Psalm chapter 2. Uh, should be on page 415 if you've got a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 2 and 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords. He that sitteth in heaven, in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath, and vex them in His sore pleasure. Yet if I set my King upon my holy hill in Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said to me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. Ask of me, and I shall give the heathen, or the nations, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest to be angry, and you perish in the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little." Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Guide us tonight as we look at Your Word. Open our hearts to receive it. Let Your Spirit give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Let this strengthen us and encourage us. Uh, Lord, truly, this this world is in chaos and so much of the chaos we see going on around us, it, it is an act of rebellion against You. And your reign. And if we're not careful, we will be afraid. We will live in fear. We will cower as your people. And let us learn from this psalm. That is not the appropriate response for the people of Almighty God. Fill me tonight with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm two is what we call a messianic psalm, right? And this means it is, it prophetically teaches us about Jesus. Now this psalm is an easy outline because there are natural divisions within the psalm. There are four sections of the psalm, so there's going to be four points. And each section seems to either have a different speaker or or to come from a different perspective. And so understanding the perspective of the speaker is the key to understanding the psalm. So in verses 1-3 through we have the author speaking and he's musing on mankind's rebellion against God. In verses four through six, the, we're seeing rebellion from God's point of view. It's God speaking, or it is God's perspective about this rebellion. In verse seven through nine, we see the, the perspective of the anointed king, or Jesus, and while he feels, or what he says about the rebellion. And then verses ten through twelve we hear or we see from the perspective of the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in the midst of humanity's rebellion against God. Now the great theme of this psalm is the utter futility of rebelling against God. From start to finish, the idea is mankind will rebel against God. Mankind does rebel against God. But this is a terrible idea. And it is a complete waste of time because man is finite, but God is infinite. Man is puny, but God is awesome. Man is, is weak, but God is sovereign. And as the sovereign ruler of the universe, He will ensure His plans are carried out. So the main idea I want us to understand tonight is no matter how humanity changes their rebellion, right? So no matter what form it takes now or in etern- or up until Jesus comes back, no matter how humanity changes their rebellion, God's sovereign rule remains the same. No matter how humanity changes their rebellion... God's sovereign rule remains the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So there are four truths from these four perspectives. First is God is not surprised by human rebellion. So these first three verses, it depicts the hostility and rebellion of the world against God. In in verse 1, it talks about the, the heathen or the Gentiles or the nations raging. Right, and and they are raging, and they are imagining, or they are scheming, or they are plotting. Right, and so both of those are a, a word picture for us. The idea of of raging is that of an angry mob shouting and and really just thumbing their nose and shaking their fists at God. Right, this isn't so much the the anger, the the rage isn't so much an internal rage. It is the external, the outward agitation of the raging mob, if you watch the news and you see what's going on in any number of American cities, you, you get the idea of, of the raging, the mob shouting and screaming and the chaos and the anger and the hatred coming from them. That is the exact same picture here. Charles Spurgeon said the word for rage, it, it could carry with it the idea or be an allusion to the rolling and roaring of the sea, right? So just that constant rolling, roaring, raw. Roar. But not only are the nations raging, but the people are plotting. Right? They are in the King James. It says they imagine. Yours um, may say something else: scheming, plotting, planning. And so, in my mind, this picture is. Groups of people huddled together in a dark room making plans. Right? So you have one group of people who's just in a mob shouting and screaming and shaking their fists at God. You have a, another group of people in a dark room huddled up together planning and plotting and scheming about what they're going to do. But it's not just the people, right? And the idea in verse 1 is really it's kind of everybody. But in verse 2 we see it is the kings of the earth. So there is a, a coalition of world rulers who come together against a it's going to be a long night against a common enemy. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. And the common enemy is against the Lord. So the people are raging, the people are plotting, the kings of the earth are coming together against this common enemy, this God, and against his anointed. Now, the, the word anointed, um, if, if we were to look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the word for anointed would probably be something like Christos. Because Christ means anointed or Messiah. It, it's Basically, this is where, part of where we get the idea this is talking about Jesus. God's anointed is Jesus. So they are raging against God. They are raging against God's anointed. And, and what are they raging and plotting and scheming and coming together to fight? Verse 3, to break their bands, the bands of, the king, of God and of His King, to break them asunder and cast the cords from us. Now the bonds and cords refer to the precepts of God or the guidelines Scripture gives us. So they are coming together to throw off the rule of God from their life. They are raging against God's rule. They are raging against God's precepts and God's commands and God's standards for righteousness. And they are plotting against it, and they are scheming against it, and the rulers of the earth are trying to get, get together to throw it off. Now, I think it's obvious as we look at our world, the world at large opposes the moral and ethical teachings of Scripture. Right, so, you begin to, to talk about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no way to heaven apart from Him, and, and people will rage right if you begin to talk about things like sexual purity, people will rage. If you talk about God's standards for marriage, people will rage and so that's what we see here they they want nothing to do with God's rule or God's reign over their life and they are trying to throw off his his scripture, his principles that are in the, what they say is binding them right so They reject a God who is holy. They reject a God who is sovereign. They reject a God who will hold them accountable. There is that very definite rejection of God, but there is also the very definite rejection of God's anointed. So they reject a Savior who died because His death declares they're sinners. They reject a Savior who rose from the dead because His resurrection declares they are hopeless apart from Him. They reject a Savior who says, take up your cross and follow me, because this declares He is able to make demands upon their life. And so they rage, and they plot, and they scheme. Now the raging and scheming we see against God in our day is not new. It has been happening since the early parts of the book of Genesis, And it continues, and we'll look at it just a little bit, to the very end of the world. One of the last events before the kingdom of God is fully consummated on the earth is a worldwide rebellion against God. And what I want us to know is it is important for us to understand this. It is important for us to understand the world, humanity, and is in rebellion against God. So the times we have lived in where it was remotely where it was peaceful to be a follower of Jesus Christ, where it was acceptable and it was even popular to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that time period is a very minor part of redemptive history. The vast majority of time It has not been an acceptable or popular thing to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. The church history is littered with the bodies of the martyrs of the faith who were torn asunder, who were burned at the stake, who were fed at the lions, who were dipped in pitch and set afire alive to light the garden for Caesar. So when we look at the world and it seems like it's all out of sorts and the people hate our God and they are plotting and they are scheming and they are raging against Him, we shouldn't go. What's happening? What's going on in the world? What we're seeing is what's always been the case. The nation's rage. The people hate and reject and rebel against our God the plotting and the scheming and the raging against our God and our King is not new, and it's not going to get any better. If I understand Scripture properly, I believe it's only going to get worse. And we have to understand that. We have to be prepared for that. We have to know God is not surprised by this human rebellion. Because the more things change, the more they stay the same. No matter how humanity changes their rebellion, God's sovereign rule remains the same. So God is not surprised by human rebellion. Secondly, God is not threatened by human rebellion. In verses 4-6, through six, We see their raging and their scheming. It didn't go unnoticed by God. God knows all about their plotting. All about their scheming. All about them taking counsel together. And He's not surprised and He's not threatened either. Notice what it says. God, or He that sitteth in the heavens, shall laugh. God isn't the slightest bit worried. About their raging, or their plotting, or their scheming, or their taking counsel together. In fact, it's just the opposite. God is laughing. But He's not laughing with them. This isn't humor. God is laughing at them. God holds them in derision, it says in verse 4. It is a, a laugh of scorn. It is God laughing at the futility of what they're doing. They are furiously raging against Him. They are constantly scheming against Him. Meanwhile, He watches from His throne and He laughs at the foolishness and the futility of their actions. The great and the awesome God of the universe sits on His throne in heaven. And He looks down at at puny little creatures. Creatures He created. Creatures He sustains with just the word of His mouth. Creatures whose lives are wholly dependent upon Him. Creatures He could snuff out with a thought. And they are plotting and raging and scheming against the One who is the only source of their life and breath. God sees this idea as so utterly preposterous that He scornfully and mockingly laughs at them. What a picture we have in verse 4. But it goes on because the laughter doesn't stay forever. Look at verse 5. Then He shall speak unto them when he speaks, it's not the kind words of come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. No, he speaks to them in his wrath. The anger of the Lord is finally kindled. The mercy of God comes to an end and God speaks to them in his wrath. And the King James says he will vex them. Other translations speak it in different ways, but it means that he brings deep and terrible consequences into their lives. He will bring distress into their life. He will bring His wrath into their lives. He will bring terror into their lives. And it comes from His deep displeasure at their raging and their scheming and their plotting and their seeking to throw off His rule and His reign. But, Despite all they've plotted and the fact that they're going to lose, it is ineffectual. All of their plotting and all of their scheming not only brought the wrath of God down upon them, it accomplished nothing about stopping God from accomplishing His purpose. Verse 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. All of the plotting and all of the scheming and all of the raging, it did nothing to stop God's plans. It had zero impact. God still did what God was going to do. He still is going to set up His kingdom and they can't stop it. He is still going to set His Son on the throne and they can do nothing about it. It is so sure, God speaks of a future event as in past tense. Yet have I. I've already done it. Since I've decreed it, since I've decided it, it's going to happen. And there's nothing they do that's going to stop it. Now the picture here of the king being set upon the holy hill of Zion, I believe it means the first, it probably has a dual meaning, first and second coming. talk about the first here. The second coming is actually the next point. But it refers to his first coming. Notice the the psalmist predicts there will be plotting and scheming and raging against God's anointed servant. Those of us who are familiar with the gospel accounts, we know that Jesus died because there was plotting and scheming and raging from the people, from the leaders of the people. The the priests, the Levites, the, the common people, Pilate, Herod, all of them, took part in the plot against Jesus, schemed against Jesus, and, and sent Him to the cross to be crucified. And yet what we know from this psalm and from our understanding of Scripture is this didn't catch Jesus off guard. This didn't catch God off guard. When they were taking Jesus to the cross, God didn't say, oh my goodness, I better come up with a plan B. No. This was God's plan A. Jesus came to go to the cross to die for the sins of humanity so that He would rise again on the third day declaring He was the Son of God. And so they plotted and they schemed and they raged and in the end, all they did was accomplish God's plan. All they did was bring God's will to fruition. How awesome is our God? I mean, think about that. The nation's can rage against God and against His Christ. They can plot and they can scheme, but in the end, all their plotting and scheming does is serve to fulfill God's plans and do God's will. That's what happened with Jesus. Man, there's... And I'll get to this in a second, but there's confidence in God there, isn't there? Should, should we... As the people of God, be fear, be afraid. Isn't this why Paul would write in Timothy and says, God has not given us a spirit of fear? Or or he writes in Romans and said, God has not given us a spirit of fear that, that brings us into bondage? No. Because we serve a God. So great that when the nations rage and the people plot, He's not surprised. He's not worried. He laughs at the futility of their raging and plotting. And no matter what they do or how they do it, all they do is serve to fulfill His plan. And we could just go all through the Bible and see that. Didn't Joseph's brother, didn't they plot and scheme against God's chosen in that family? And they... Put him in a pit and sold him to slavers who took him to Egypt. And he rose to prominence and was able to set up a safe place for Egypt or for Israel to come and stay. They served to fulfill God's purposes. Or or how about in in Acts when the church first begins to suffer persecution. First it's just on the apostles, but then it's on the people. And once the general populace of Christians begin to suffer. They, They flee Jerusalem. And what does the Bible tell us they do? They preach the gospel everywhere they go. And they did it in Jerusalem. And Judea. And Samaria. And the uttermost parts of the earth. All of their raging against the church in Jerusalem. All it did was serve. To cause the church to go to the ends of the earth. And take the gospel everywhere. They went. The more things change, the more they stay the same. God is not threatened by human rebellion because no matter how humanity changes their rebellion, God's sovereign rule remains the same. God is not surprised by human rebellion. God is not threatened by human rebellion. And thirdly, Jesus will reign despite human rebellion. Verse 7, we see the testimony of the anointed king. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The king's testimony is a testimony of victory. The peoples of the world raged and plotted. The kings of the earth came together. And in the end, it did nothing. In the end, God's anointed was still set up as king. And His first act as king is just to declare what God has said has come to pass. The king declares to the rebellious people, God doesn't ask for a consensus to rule the world. God doesn't take a vote to rule the world. God simply makes a decree and the decree comes to pass regardless of how the people plot or how the people scheme, or how the rulers of the earth come together to throw off the bonds of God. They do no good. Verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Right, this is a connection to Jesus being the Son, and being God's anointed King. This thing's, It speaks of Him having dominion, over the whole earth. And it was customary that when a king rose someone to great prominence, what they would do is they would say, ask of me a request. And they would ask whatever they wanted, and the king would give it to them. Now our king, our king is a redeemer, and so look what he asked for. The heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That He he rules. He wants to rule through redemption. That's the picture. It's a picture of Jesus being the ultimate missionary. Who says what I want is not just one nation. I want the world. I want them all to know us. To love us. To worship us. To be redeemed through what I do. That's what our King asked for. So they would come to Him. They would know Him, they would love Him, and they would worship Him. But notice in verse 9, Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, the King not only reigns over those who come to Him and worship Him, the King not only reigns over those who love Him and serve Him, the King reigns over those who rebel against Him and plot against Him and scheme against Him. He is the ruler over all the nations, not just the ones who like him. And those who rage and those who plot, those who gather together to throw off his reign, will one day face the sure and certain judgment of the king. You now, the picture in verse 9 of dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, most of my commentaries think this was a an illusion taken from an Egyptian practice. And what would happen is if the Egyptians were going to war, the king, Pharaoh, would get something like this. And he would set up jars, clay jars, clay pots, and it would represent the nations they were going to war against. And in order to kind of stir the people, in order to kind of Get their motivational juices going. He would take his rod. And he would smash it. To show how thoroughly they were going to conquer their enemies. How thoroughly they were going to destroy them. That none could stand before him. And it's a picture that one day the king will come in wrath. And when the king comes in wrath. He brings judgment and destruction with him. This is. Is a reference to the second coming of Christ. Turn quickly to, to Revelation 19, page nine sixty. Revelation 19 and in verse eleven, that's where we'll start. It says and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and He that sat upon him was called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. He doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, because he was the King of Kings. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vestiger dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. And his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses clothed in white linen, white and clean. And out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it He would smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now that is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2. He would smite the nations. He would rule them with a rod of iron. And He would tread them down in the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of of God. And on and he hath on his vestiger and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now this passage comes at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus is about to set up the millennial kingdom. And he comes as a conquering king. The blood of his enemies On his clothes. He has a sword from his mouth. Which he uses to smite the nations. And he would rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads out the the winepress. The fierceness of the wrath of God. Then chapter 20 goes into the millennial reign. But look at chapter 20 verse 7. At the end of the millennial reign. And when the thousand years are expired. Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And shall go out to deceive the nations. Which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog gathered together to battle, number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. And fire came from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast in a lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tormented there day and night forever. So he rules again, he puts down another. Worldwide rebellion. He cast the devil into the lake of fire. Verses 11-14 through deal with the, the great white throne of judgment where all of these people who have rebelled against Him will stand in judgment. And if their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, they will be tossed to the lake of fire. The smoke of the torments will rise forever and ever. And then in chapter 21, New Jerusalem comes down. Eternity is ushered in. With King Jesus. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 2. The main truth. The main idea from what we, all we just looked at. Is Jesus wins. But the, the nations rage. And the people plot. And the kings of the earth gather together. To throw off his rule. And his reign. And in the end. They lose. They lose. They may win some some. Particular battles here and now. But winning a battle is not winning the war. And so while they may win some battles, and we may see some battles won against us, in the end, Jesus wins. And His saints get to be a part of that victory. People have always sought to throw off the rule and the reign of God and His anointed Christ. And they will continue to do so till the end of time. And they will ultimately and always lose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. No matter how humanity changes their rebellion, God's sovereign rule remains the same. So God is not surprised by human rebellion. God is not threatened by human rebellion. Jesus will reign despite human rebellion. And then finally the Holy Spirit pleads with humanity, Stop rebelling. These last few verses reveal to us the greatness of the mercy of our God. All this up to this point has been the people raging and imagining and plotting against our God. It's about the consequence of the futility of that. God laughs and is going to do what He's going to do. His king is going to reign and there's nothing they can do about it. But if they continue to rebel, they will face the sure and certain and terrible judgment of Almighty God. In light of these truths, what should the people do? Be wise now therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Trembling. The Holy Spirit in these last few verses is... Is pleading with people. Stop your rebellion. Come. Come. Come to the sun. Come to God. Be instructed. By what we've just seen. All of your plotting. And all of your scheming. Is futile and foolish. You are going to lose. You are going to lose badly. You are going to face a terrible judgment. In light of that. Receive instruction. Submit to the king, bow the knee, bow before him and serve him. Right, because submission in verse 10 leads to service in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. To serve the Lord in fear is to serve him with reverence, humility and awe. In part, it's to recognize he is God and we are not. It is to recognize the God we serve is so great, His plans cannot be thwarted. It is recognizing God's King will rule and will utterly crush all rebellion. To serve Him with fear means we unconditionally surrender ourselves to do His will. And for those who do this, we see a massive change in attitudes right first. There is the raging and the scheming and the coming together to throw off His reign. Then there is the submission of receiving His instruction and the serving the Lord with fear. This is the great change that happens in a person's life when they come to Jesus and are born again. Listen, a born-again believer doesn't rage against God and His anointed King. A born-again believer doesn't scheme to find ways around doing the will and the will of God. A born-again believer doesn't seek to to get out from underneath the yoke of Scripture, but obeys it because they've taken up their cross and they're following Jesus. Now, I I would say, dear friends, anyone we do not see this change, anyone who still rages and schemes, seeks to throw off, and has not begun to submit and to serve with fear, such people we should worry that they were never born again. No matter what they say. I like the end of verse 11. To rejoice with trembling. That almost seems contradictory. To rejoice with trembling. But I think it's a great phrase. And I think it pictures all we, we understand about salvation. We rejoice at the grace extended to us. And we tremble. At the wrath of God we escaped from when we were saved. We rejoice at how great the God of heaven is. We tremble at the fact we once raged against Him ourselves. We rejoice at our salvation. We tremble at the fact we We resisted it. We rejected it. We could have faced the sure and the severe judgment of God. We rejoice that our God loves us and has received us. And we tremble at those who are continually still raging and scheming, coming together to throw off His rule and His reign. Verse 12, it says to kiss the sun. And this pictures submission and worship to the mighty king. In the ancient world, when a king was conquered and was going to be allowed to continue to rule over his kingdom under the king of kings over him, he would have to, in some way, kiss the king to show his submission. And the kissing would be done in a variety of ways. Sometimes it would typically always be done in public. Because all the world needed to see this king submitting to the king. So sometimes the king would hold out his hand with the signet ring on it. And it would be the seal of the kingdom. And the other king would bow and he would kiss the the ring. Sometimes the robes of the king would have the seal of the kingdom on it. And he would hold up the robe. And the man would grab the robe and he would kiss the robe. Sometimes it would even be to kiss the king on the cheek. To come close and to kiss him on the cheek. And it was all the ways just to say, I now serve this king. I may be a king, but he is the king. The king over kings. The king over me. And we'll remind it again to do this so, we don't perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Rejecting the king, well, it comes with consequences. Now, something I think is interesting. Notice it says, when his wrath is kindled but a little. We perish from the king if his wrath is kindled but a little. Not let him get mad and then wait till he's just furious. But no, no. You'll perish. The king's anger is even slightly aimed at you. That's how powerful the king is. But blessed are they who put their trust in him. And it seems we're given a choice. We can kiss the sun and be blessed. Or we can continue our plotting and our raging and our scheming. And we can face the wrath of the King. We can submit and be blessed. Or we can rebel and face wrath and judgment. The picture here is the Holy Spirit pleading to understand the greatness of the King. And surrender to Him. And begin to serve Him. That's the point of... Verse 10, be wise. Be wise. Realize the futility of the raging. Realize the futility of the plotting. Realize that you, you must kiss the sun. There is no other way. And it's as if the Holy Spirit himself were saying to us and to others reading this, come, Come before it's too late. Come before the judgment falls. Knowing the greatness of God and His anointed Christ should lead us to kiss the Son, to serve Him with reverence and humility and awe. Man's rage and plotting against God is nothing new. It's been around almost from the very beginning of time. And it will continue till the very end of time as we know it. As followers of Christ, we live knowing this. Knowing it will continue in our lives. Knowing it is not going to get better. It is only going to get worse. But we do not live in fear. We live with absolute confidence in our God. I think we see this in the psalm. The psalmist calls what they do their imaginations in the King James Bible. And, and it literally, it pictures they're just thinking of things. And he, and he calls it the vain things, which means worthless and empty. So the psalmist, that's even what he says, the, the people, they're, what they're doing is worthless. It's futile. He knows this, and so he lives with confidence. We look at the world and we are tempted to fear. We are tempted to worry what will happen. One of the psalms we'll look at eventually says, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? And I've heard that preached so often as a lament. Oh, is us, what will the righteous do? But the next verse says God is on His throne. So we look at the world and we are not afraid. We're not concerned. We're not in fear. Because our God wins, the King will rule. Our God and His anointed King is greater than the plots of man, the schemes of man, greater than the raging of the mobs. When we trust in these truths, we see the raging, we see the scheming, we see the coming together, but rather than being afraid or cowering, We shake our heads and we say, what a waste of time on their behalf. Because we know they lose and our God wins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us to take what we've learned tonight and let it strengthen us and encourage us. The world rages. The world schemes leaders come together to throw off your reign in so many, so many ways. And yet you're greater than all. You're not surprised. You're not threatened. Jesus is still going to rule. Jesus is still going to reign. And let us live confidently and let us echo the message the Holy Spirit. Come, kiss the sun before it's too late. Be instructed. Burden our hearts for those around us who are raging. Those around us who are scheming. Those around us who are coming together to throw off your rule and reign from their lives. Make us lights that shine brightly for Jesus, we ask in His name. Amen.